I'm not sure about you, but over the years I've read a few books and been to a few seminars and heard quite a few church planting visions and strategies and schemes and some of them quite good, um, mostly with good and godly intention, some of them perhaps leaning too heavily on the schemes of men um, and some maybe just on a wing and a prayer, but most of them with a genuine heart for the lost and wanting to proclaim Christ. But I don't think I've heard too many church planting success stories like the one Tim read for us in the book of Acts saying or suggesting that the best way to start a church is have a good argument between a couple of preachers, good enough to actually go your separate ways, and off you go, only to find closed door after closed door, thinking you're going to start here, night, start, night, not there, go there, only to end up in a place only because the leader had a dream and a vision one night, and only to go there and interrupt a prayer meeting that's already established, and then only, which we didn't have read for us, find yourself in prison, and then breaking out from prison sort of. I haven't read that in any church planning manuals. Here's the one, two, three, four steps to go start a church. And I'm not suggesting that John should try to break out of prison next time he's visiting the folk at Mobilong. But that's what happened here in Philippi. That's how the church of the Philippians was established. And they are the events that lead up to this letter that we're going to spend some time in these coming months Paul's letter to the Philippians some years later. Which sort of confirms for us, doesn't it, that saying that God does move in mysterious ways. We might have plans and think if we do this and that, then that'll be the result, but that's not always how it works. Now, God does move in mysterious ways, but one of the problems is that verse or that saying is not actually any particular verse in the Bible. Did you know that? It's probably closest to Isaiah 55 where it says, My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. It's actually got more to do with God's pardoning of sin and his mercy than it does about planting churches. But that passage in Isaiah does go on to declare that as the rain and snow water the earth, causing it to sprout and bear fruit before it returns to the sky, so too God's word, wherever it goes, bears fruit. God may well move and work in mysterious ways but within that mysteriousness within those mysterious ways there is something sure and certain that we can know that God's word will have the effect that he intends it to wherever it goes that every word that comes out of God's mouth will accomplish what he purposed it to do every word of God succeeds or achieves what he sent it to do it never returns to him empty or void. There is always a result. Always a result. It always bears fruit of one kind or another. And what we're going to hear this morning, if I can connect it with the last two weeks where we've had a couple of sermons from the Gospel of Matthew regarding seeds and sowing seeds and bearing fruit or not being on funny soils, different soils, not funny ones, but in the kingdom of God, as God sows those seeds. He's the sower. He's the farmer. He's the vine dresser, to use another analogy from Scripture. Even if it's mixed up with weeds, even if it falls on different soils, and even those we've heard in the last couple of weeks, there is a call for us to hear that word and believe it. Those who have ears, hear, be careful to hear. As Paul writes in Corinthians, he might plant and Apollos might water, 
but neither of them are anything. It's God who gives the growth. And I think we've been hearing that the last couple of weeks. God's seed, his word, never returns empty. It will always bear fruit of some kind. It always achieves what he sent it to do. Or as we're going to hear this morning in Philippians, he who began a good work in you, he will bring it to completion. Did you hear that? He who began a good work in you, he will bring it to completion. Which I don't know about you, but for me as a pastor, as a father, as a teacher, as a child of God myself, that just gives me so much relief and comfort. It's like, phew, it's not all up to me. As shepherds here at Coro, the elders and Nat and myself as pastors, we're told we're accountable for your souls before the Lord. And yet it's not up to us. God who has begun a work in you, he will bring it to completion. He hasn't got me or you simply started and given us a kickstart or a second chance in life and we might get there if we work hard enough. Now, if he's begun a work in you, he will make sure you get to the, the end point, the telos, the goal of that work. And whatever it is he calls you or me to do and to be as we strive to do that faithfully, in his strength, not in our own, it'll be he who gets us there in the end. John Newton got it right, didn't he? His grace has saved me, by grace I've come thus far, and his grace will lead me home. It may at times seem like wherever he's leading us, or maybe wherever we wander, it's a somewhat circuitous route. It may not be direct. We may take a lot of detours along the way. Think of the prodigal son. Think of that psalm that Naveen read for us, or he read part of it. We would still be here if he was reading all of Psalm 19. Beautiful psalm about delighting in the law of God. If you read it all to the very end, have a listen. I long for your salvation, O Lord. Your law is my delight. Let my soul live and praise you. Let your rules help me. And this is the last verse. <laughs> I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Here's one who delights in the law of God. It's like tasting sweet honey. But I've gone astray. Seek your servant, Lord. One who knows the Lord and his word, ask the Lord to seek him out. Because he knows he needs the Lord to get him there in the end. Because I don't forget your commandments. At times it might even look like we're taking two steps forward and one step back, or even one step forward and two steps back. But even in all of that, we can trust God is working his good purposes, can't we? He is. He's shaping us, he's conforming us, and he's securing us, taking us to that goal, the prize, as Paul calls it later in Philippians, of that upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And so we can be sure, just as Paul is here, that if God has begun that good work in us, he will bring it to completion. How good is that? We're taking a step back today of a different sort. We're interrupting our series through Matthew's Gospel. 
um, to preach through Philippians. Why, you might ask? Well, one reason purely practical and pedagogical. Sometimes it's good and helpful to break up a long book um, into shorter chunks and bite-sized chunks rather than one really long series. Uh, We're doing that with Matthew. Uh, But the reason's more so, actually, because as I was reflecting and praying at the end of last year regarding what the Lord might have us here at Coro, for us here at Coro, and our preaching series, and sharing with some of the elders or with the elders some of the things I was thinking and praying about, it struck me that the themes and the truth contained here in this letter are things we need to be reminded of and we need to hear. I had a deep sense that as a church and personally in a lot of places, we need to be hearing and immersed afresh in the grace of God, in his work in our lives, not our work for him. Every church, every believer all the time, we need to be refreshed in that grace, don't we? So that's no new thing. His riches towards us. We know God's grace, God's, if you're upper primary and you've got one of those worksheets, God's riches at Christ's expense. God just bestowing his love and his mercy and his grace and salvation to us at the expense of the life of Christ. His unconditional, sovereign, steadfast love towards us. His free gift of forgiveness, adoption, eternal life, our sanctification, gifts of God's grace, of God's grace. And we could have gone to a number of places to hear that. We could have gone to Galatians, great one for God's grace, and Romans. But in the midst of my reflections and prayers and some of the things happening to many folk here in our church family, some of the questions I've been hearing, some of the struggles we're having, some of the health battles that we know about, we may not be persecuted, but we are perplexed in many ways, aren't we? As we look around what's going on in the world as well, different nations, Israel, Palestine, Ukraine, Russia, wondering what God is about in the nations and in our own lives. Philippians speaks to us not only of the grace of God in our lives, but the fruit of that grace, how it works out in our lives and what it bears in our hearts. Fruit which, as we're going to see here in Philippians, manifests itself in deep affection, genuine fellowship with one another, a real spirit of unity amongst the church, and an overriding sense of joy, We'll get to that in a minute, even in times of hardship and suffering. But also an unshakable confidence, a rock-solid certainty in the goodness and grace of God towards his beloved. And that grace that bears that fruit in our lives, then all of that together undergirds and empowers us to go on in faith, hope and love with, in prayer. Having a perspective on life and the world that is from God rather than just the world. And it also helps us to press on towards that goal set before us. And all of that together is God's gift to us, his grace. Promised to us in Christ and given in the power of the Spirit. So that's a little bit of insight into my heart and mind and prayers, but also I hope it whets your appetite towards these next few weeks in Philippians. If you haven't for a while, can I encourage you to take some time and read through the whole letter of Philippians 
Do it every day. Do it every week. It only takes about 15 minutes. It's four chapters. It'll be worth it, I promise you. And if you do do that, and someone asks you at any point, what's the theme? In, what's the main theme in Philippians? What's it all about? Simply because of the number of times it appears, you would probably be in a good place to say, I reckon joy is one of the key themes of Philippians. Philippians is a letter of joy, much joy. If we had the time, we could do a word find together like the kids have got on theirs, uh, on their worksheets. But we could actually look in the book of Philippians and try to find all the references to joy and rejoicing. I reckon there's at least a dozen of them in just four chapters. One you'll probably know well, the double header in chapter four. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. It's full of joy. And my prayer is as we go through this series that the Lord might actually grant to us a sense of that same joy. That we might be filled with joy in our lives and faith in Christ. But not just joy for the sake of being happy. This is not just having as good as it would be to be joyful all the time. As I've read and studied this book, behind that joy that Paul and the Philippians have... There's something which undergirds it all, something which provides a foundation for it. Something which appears almost as much as joy does in the letter, and I think they're very closely connected, in fact, which is why that's the case. Another key theme in this letter is that of confidence. Confidence in Christ, confidence in God the Father, and therefore all matters of life and faith. I've only been back from a couple of weeks' leave for one week. And already I've had conversations with two different people speaking about assurance in faith. One of them maybe a little bit wobbling and lacking in that area. Another one just testifying 15 years ago to when, that fight, when God granted them this wonderful assurance and he knew he was saved and nothing could take him away. Snatch him from the Father's hand. I think we'll find as we go that the kind of joy we all long for and that Paul speaks of here is connected to this confidence in Christ. There's enormous confidence in this letter. In verse 6, this sort of key verse for this morning, he says, I'm sure of this. I'm convinced that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Verse 14 of chapter 1. Most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord. Verse 19. I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit, I will be delivered. Verse 21, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He's absolutely sure it's a win-win situation. Verse 25, convinced of this, I know I will remain and continue with you. Chapter 2, verse 5, have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He's got no doubt about it. Chapter 3, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies. Not who might, but who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Chapter 4, verse 7. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds. Verse 19. My God will supply every need of yours. You might get some of what you need. No, my God will... Paul's full of confidence in this letter. Makes this question maybe, what's my confidence in? How much confidence do I have in these things? 
And again, it's my prayer the Lord might grant to us this same confidence in Christ that Paul speaks of here. And this confidence and this joy which go hand in hand are grounded and they spring from the grace of God towards us, his finished work in his Son and his ongoing work in us by the power and presence of the Spirit, a work which we've just heard he will bring to completion. So joy is the main theme, confidence, and another one is prayer. We'll be looking at Paul's prayer in verses 9 to 11. We had that read for us. We'll be looking at those verses next week. But for this week, I want to look at Paul's prayer of thanksgiving and this verse 6. This prayer of thanksgiving where Paul conveys his thanks to God, as he does in many of his letters, for those he's writing to, he gives thanks to God for the Philippians. But he tells them, he lets them know why it is, what it is he gives so much thanks for and why from the very outset. Paul's actually writing this letter from prison. It's full of joy and he's under house arrest. He's probably not in jail, but he's under house arrest. He's confined to a house with a Roman soldier there watching over him. Timothy's there with him, supporting him, probably not under house arrest himself, free to come and go and to provide for Paul. But Paul's in chains. And he actually hopes, even in his own need, he hopes to send Timothy to the Philippians later on for their well-being. And as he writes, he says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi together with the overseers and deacons. This is a letter not just for the pastor, not just for the leaders, it's for the whole church. And notice how Paul describes those he's writing to. Not to the believers, not to the church, not for that bunch up the hill or friends of Lydia, who was the lady they met in the prayer meeting. No, he says to the saints in Philippi. Those he's writing to, he looks to through the eyes of faith and from the perspective of God. The word saints literally means holy ones. These believers are saints. They've been chosen by God and set apart by God to be his and for his purposes. They're holy ones. They have been sanctified in Christ. That's who Paul is writing to. And you know what? That's who you are. If you're a believer in Christ Jesus, you're a holy one. You're a saint. You've been sanctified. By the grace of God, we are the saints up on the hill at Coro. Which is good to recognise and remember, actually, isn't it? It's one of the reasons I think Paul can be so sure that God's going to finish a work because he's begun and he's already set them apart for his purposes. They're his, they're God's. None can snatch them from his hand. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, always and only ever by his grace. But in and with that grace comes this peace and joy and confidence. And then, as I said, Paul's practice in almost every of his New Testament letters, he begins by giving thanks to God for them, or at least by telling them what it is he gives thanks to God for them in his prayers. 
I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always in every... Can you hear the alls and everys? I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Paul's heart is filled with thankfulness and joy for this church, isn't it? It'd be good for our own hearts to be filled with thankfulness and joy for our own church and for those that we share with in Christ, in ministry. Do you give thanks to God? For the people of God he's made you a part of. Do you pray for them with joy in your hearts for one another? Come along to Evensong Wednesday night and we can do just that together. Give thanks and pray with joy in our hearts. But what is it that gives Paul this joy? Why is his heart so filled with thanksgiving and joy? Because, verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now Paul's heart is filled with joy and gratefulness to God because they share with him in the gospel that partnership in the Greek is this word koinonia it's their fellowship or communion more actively perhaps it's their participation he says in the grace I hold you in my heart verse 7 because you are all partakers with me of grace Just last night, I was sitting next to a Greek scholar, biblical teacher, and he was telling me about this word koinonia. He didn't know I was preaching on this. He was talking about something in John's gospel or John's letters. But he says, we've got fellowships so different to what they meant in the first century. You know, sometimes said, you know, people go and do coffee, but Christians, when they go do coffee, they have fellowship. (laughs) As in fellowship is just what we do as we have a friendly coffee as two Christians. And it is that, but it's so much more than that. The fellowship, Paul and John and New Testament, first century Christian fellowship. It's like you had a fellowship of butchers or a fellowship of carpenters. You're actually on about the same thing with the same business, with the same values and the same beliefs. You were part of a, I don't want to use the word club, but part of a community that shared everything together and had the same purpose. That's the fellowship Paul's talking about here. It's not just we're good friends and we'll sit down and have a cuppa sometime. There's a unity in Christ, not just in relating, but in purpose, in being, in all our values, in all that we do. It's like Yoshi tasting the honey, telling the kids how good God is. We are partakers with Paul of that same grace. It's like we're all eating out of the same honey pot of God's goodness. And we've all tasted and seen that God is good and that's what we're about together. That's what it is to have fellowship as God's people. This church in Philippi and each of the members in it, they've experienced the grace of God just as Paul has. And it's transformed their lives so that they're now all on about the same thing. And they know that and share in it together. That is the source of Paul's joy. And that's the reason why he's so thankful to God for these believers in Philippi. Not simply because they share some mutual interests and they get along well together. They have actual fellowship and communion together in life and faith and in the grace of God. They participate in gospel life together. Many of us, I'm sure, have gone to 
we've travelled or go visit a different church, you go to a foreign land and you might not even know the language. And you have that sense where even though you don't know what's going on, you might not know anyone, you have a great unity because you're one together in Christ. That's part of this fellowship. But there's something more here between Paul and the Philippians. They share in all of life. Later on in chapter 4, he says, It was them and them alone who stuck by him and partnered with him, supporting him in practical terms in the gospel and in his ministry, when everyone else forsook him. They stuck by him. This fellowship was very practical, full of purpose. One of their own members even from Philippi, Epaphroditus, we'll hear about him later, he almost died getting some information and some gifts to Paul. Such as their love and support towards him. And some of us here, we just, what do we say? We've got three or four in a row preaching at Williamstown. We have a fellowship in the gospel with that church. And they sent word to us a little while ago just how grateful they were for that. How much joy it gives them. It's actually really wonderful and special. And there's others too that we share with. Paul holds these believers in his heart. He yearns for them with the affection of Christ Jesus, such as the deep bond of love they have. Not just a human one, but a divine bond in Christ. And the way they express that bond, it's not just a unity in Christ that's spiritual, it's very practical as an outward expression and the visible fruit. He says in verse 7, It's right for me to feel this way about you, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defence and confirmation of the gospel. Paul has seen in the lives of this church the fruit of the grace of God in their lives. And because he's seen evidence of that gospel work in their life, he is sure that he who began a good work in them will bring it to completion. That's what he's saying here in these opening verses. He is convinced that it's right for him to feel this way. Not just because they've got a good place in his heart, but because they've partaken of the grace of God. And he's absolutely sure, therefore, that God will finish what he's begun in these saints at Philippi. must be nice to be that confident you ever had someone say that to you must be nice to be that confident that sure maybe they've said it with a bit of jealousy because they're not so sure themselves maybe with a sense of mockery can you really be that sure maybe even with a degree of venom because if someone doesn't believe there can be that much confidence then you must be pretty arrogant to be that confident But we can be that confident. Not in an arrogant way. I think I can be guilty of that sometimes without any gentleness or understanding towards others. We can be guilty of that confidence coming across as arrogance. But we too, we can be sure that God who began a work in us will bring it to completion. And maybe for someone who hears that and doesn't have that same confidence... Any level of confidence they see in another person is going to be a threat and they're going to see it as arrogance because they don't yet have that confidence. That must be something of pride and presumption to have that kind of confidence. But it's not. We're going to see it next week. Paul's confidence doesn't lead to presumption or complacency. If it did, he wouldn't be writing this letter. And if it did, he wouldn't pray what he prays next. 
in verses 9 to 11. We'll look at that next week. True confidence in God, in Christ, is not presumptuous. It's not arrogant or proud. It's extremely humble. has to be. Because it's all of God's grace, isn't it? It's all gift to us. It's not our own work. It's not our own strength or righteousness that gives us any of this. It's all of Christ. Take a look again at the opening line. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Paul's confidence isn't in himself because he's a great leader and can charismatically draw anyone. No, he's confident because he's a servant of Christ. Not presumptuous, not arrogant, but one who submitted himself to the Lord. He's not some super apostle. He's a servant. He once had confidence in himself. We're going to hear about that later in the series in chapter 3. But now he puts no confidence whatsoever in the flesh. None. In his own status, in his works, in his history, his pedigree. But he has absolute confidence in Christ. Confidence that can come only by the grace of God. Confidence that comes with joy and thanksgiving. Because he knows that God never gives up on his children. He knows that God's word always accomplishes what he sent it to do. God never leaves a job undone. Got a few of them around the house? Not too many laughs. Got a couple of carpenters here. How would it be if they started their job? No, no, that's good enough. Leave it there. How would you feel if someone came and did that? Plumbing, unfinished. Now, God never leaves a job undone. And I don't mean job as in here's just a task and check it off, God done that. No, this job, this task of God actually raising us as his children to full maturity in Christ and bringing us home that we might dwell with him. Full in Christ. That job, that task, that transformation and conforming of us sanctifying of us God will bring to completion we may well still be a work in progress we all are aren't we until that day but God is always at work and he won't stop working until he takes us and grows us and brings us into his own very heart and home to that telos when we will dwell with him in glory on that great day. And so I can say, with great confidence, as well as with great relief and joy, to you, the saints at Coro, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Amen.